0: If you have a Bible or an electronic device, turn, turn to the book of First Peter, towards the back of your Bible. You got the New Testament, you got the Gospels, you got Paul's epistles, you got that great book of Hebrews, and then you got James, and then 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Holy Father, may this morning grace and peace be multiplied to all of us here, hearing your eternal, precious, holy, true word through your servant. Peter to the glorification of the name of Jesus and to the deep, deep, desperately needed roots of your people exiled here on earth. I pray. Amen. This morning, we begin a journey through the book of 1 Peter. Here's my intention over the next six, seven months. To preach the book of 1 Peter. said that very deliberately. Not merely to preach from 1 Peter. My goal may not perfectly accomplish it. But my goal, and you should endeavor, know that you're welcome, know it's your responsibility, as for, because I'm a pastor, to hold me accountable, to preach what's there, to, to let Peter have his day on Sunday mornings through me. That's the goal of biblical... Expository, in exposing what is there. Let Peter make the arguments. Let us see what he's saying. He has the words of life as an apostle, not you. And so, the goal of preaching through 1 Peter is not merely to take text and have a little jumping off point so that I could spout my nice ideas, but to try to let the ideas in the words and the sentences and the relation of sentence to sentence and the arguments of what Peter is doing by the being carried along by the Holy Spirit, let those speak and confront and change and mold and comfort and root us. Okay, second introduction is the introduction. What do we do here? Here's a book. Basic foundational questions for just a couple minutes. Like, where did this book come from? Or letter come from? Who's writing it and to whom, etc. First notice, if you go to Bible college, you might take the pastoral epistles of Paul. You might take the prison epistles of Paul. Or you might take the general epistles. They throw James in there and Peter in there. Throw John's epistles in there. This is a general letter from the Apostle Peter, meaning it's not specifically to a particular church dealing with particular problems like Paul writing to the Corinthians or to the Galatian churches or something. It is, here's Christianity in the way God has Peter express it. And you can see it when he says, to whom? to those who are exiled. They're in exile, away from their homeland. Scattered where? And you see five provinces. Those are not cities, those are provinces. He is sending this letter, if you look on your maps in the back of your Bible, those Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, they are what is called Asia Minor back then. That massive area. There's at least forty cities that this letter, which makes it a cyclical letter, which on purpose he's writing this letter. It's being carried, but it's being from the get-go copied. Make a copy. Make more copies. let it sit down very slowly. Let's make tons of copies. I have photocopies. You to sit down and write it so that this. Message from Peter to the believers in all these different counties called provinces and cities where the churches exist could be delivered to them. This letter is also a diaspora letter. Who knows that term? I just heard the term this last week on talk radio. Just because it's a term that's come over into our English language from way back. With Jews. And it was referred to using it to refer to Iranians in America, the diaspora Iranians. But it originally comes from Judaism. That is, back at this time in the first century, the vast majority of Jewish people in the world lived outside of Palestine, outside of Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee. The majority were not there at all. They were in Corinth, in Athens, in Rome, in Ephesus, all over the Roman Empire. And the Jewish leaders would, from Jerusalem, write diaspora letters to Greek-speaking Jews, and because they're in the homeland back there, where the high priests are. And Peter is modeling this letter after the Jewish. Diaspora, because the word diaspora, which is the Greek word, means dispersed abroad. They were not in Jerusalem or Judea. They're dispersed abroad the Roman Empire. Okay. Now Peter says, you notice it to those who are elect exiles. Exiles means you're driven away. You're outside of your homeland. Of the diaspora. Of the dispersion. Now, here's the point though. Peter's not writing this to Jews. He's not even mainly writing this to Christian Jews. The epistle bears out that the vast majority of the believers he's writing to in these provinces are mainly Gentile Christians. But he's got this uh, he's, he's got this model that he's using. You are not home. You're exiled. What are you talking about? Most of them have lived for 60 years, if they're that old, in the same little village, in the same little town, and haven't moved away. And he says, because you are elect, it has caused you to be in exile. Away from your true home. Heaven, the Kingdom, the Second Coming. We're in the world. We're not of the world. This is a major theme to understand week after week for the next number of months that's going on in Peter's mind. Thus, the Holy Spirit's mind. So, this letter, it's written by Peter. It's clear. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wrote it during Nero's reign. Nero, the emperor, the nuthead, ruled from 54 to 68 A.D. Peter, it's pretty pretty certain that he died under Nero being executed in 64 A.D. So obviously he wrote it before then. Probably he's writing this around 62 to 64 A.D. In other words, 30 years after the crucifixion resurrection, his encounter with Jesus on the beach there, 30 years later, or 30 years ago is when I graduated high school. Here's Peter writing this, and he's writing from Rome. This is where we know Peter ended up at this time of his life, and we know he died there. And there's this other key at the end of the epistle In chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, means the church, sends you greetings. Now, Babylon. Nothing's going on in Babylon in the first century that makes it significant. Biblically, see, he's got this big worldview going on, and things are representing stuff, like the dispersion letter. Okay like being exiled, where was God's chosen people, the Jews, exiled to? 587. Babylonian captivity. He sees the center of the world is Rome. Where He's at, it's the Babylon. The world itself is a place of exile for all true believers. They're in the world, but not of it. Now let's go this morning to our text. Chapter one, verses one to two. What we have here is a standard three part salutation. It's how they wrote letters. You see it all through Paul's. It means the way you write a state you open a letter, it's not saying, Dear so and so, at the end of the letter, sign your name like we do it. It is you open up with who you are that is writing, that is the sender section. Then, you go to the addressee section, to whom I'm writing. From Joe to my wife, Sonia. And then, the third part, that blessing. Grace and peace to you. And we have that standard three-part salutation here this morning. Peter, an apostle, center section. And then... He does something stunning in the addressee section. Let me just read just that section. To those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit unto or for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood see instead of saying which he could have said to the believers to the saints to to the churches to the Christians He doesn't wait for the body of the letter, which begins in verse 3. In the greeting, in the salutation, he inserts this massive theological statement about election, which by definition creates people who are aliens in this world. Why does he do it? This is why I think he does it. He's not a 21st century American Christian. He does it. Because Peter knows how important right Gospel, Biblical doctrine is for real He knows how important and practical it is. Click that off. He says to the elect. In the sender section. But he's not done. Then, see that in verse 2? Look at it. He goes on to define exactly what he means. I mean, it's strong enough to say, to those who have been chosen. But he unpacks it with three prepositional phrases. Chosen according to. Chosen in. And chosen in. Literally, unto this result. See it? Verse 2. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit. For or unto obedience to Jesus Christ. And unto the sprinkling of His blood. So Peter, in the formal, standard salutation, grounds the identity of true believers in the doctrine of election. And exactly what he means by it. Now, first I want you to notice. you need to look at your text, I'm not sure which translation you're looking at. But in the original, in the Greek, the word chosen, or elect. It's the Greek word, electoes. It is the fifth word. There's four words that come before it, and that's the center section. Peter, Apostle, Jesus, Christ. Then the very next word is, to the elect. Now why do I make that statement? Because depending on which translation you have, you can't see it. And, in Greek, as opposed to English... Word order can be very important. We don't have that choice grammatically in English. You've got to put the subject before the verb. And you've got to put the object after the verb. In Greek, you don't have to do that. It's one of the first things I teach people that I teach Greek. Because... The endings of a word, you change them, called suffixes or and there were prefixes that denote what the word is doing. Subject, object, this. So you can take that word and if you want to emphasize, there's my main emphasis, you can throw it up front. And that's exactly what Peter does. The reason I mention this is because if you have the King James Version or the New American Standard uh, Version, you can't see this, because they chose to not translate the word to the elect until the beginning of verse 2. But if you have the ESV or the NIV, you can see it. Okay. But then why did the New King James, the King James, the New American Standard, wait till verse 2? Because there's two things you got to wrestle with in translation. You don't want to lose both. This is why I mentioned it. Emphasis He says it first. This is his main point. Before he says anything else about them to the elect. Emphasis. But, like the ESV, you might lose the connection of the word elect, those who are chosen, with the three defining prepositional words. Phrases in verse 2. You're chosen according to. And you might lose that, so they chose to go to verse 2. And then you could take the NIV, which is much more in its theory of translation, a paraphrase. So they just said, what the heck? We want to make it really clear what we think that our interpretation is, so we will translate the word elect twice to make clear what's going on. And here, I'm going to read it for a moment. The NIV... I think they're dead right. Okay? This is an interpretation, but the way they're translating is making the connections clear. As they say, quote, to God's elect, there it is, it's up front, emphasis, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Age of Athenia, who have been chosen they just translated translate it again. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Peter puts it first on purpose for emphasis. His main thing, he is driving home in the sender section before he gets to the body of the letter. He can't wait! He could have waited, but he can't wait. The implications of this, I think, are huge. Peter is not trying to hide doctrine. In the greeting section, before the blessing, before he says hi, he inserts this massive, huge, and unpacks it theologically what he means by your God's chosen. Why does he do it? He does it because he cares. He does it because He loves these believers who are going through and or will be going through horrific things in this life. And therefore, He clothes them in the doctrine, the teaching of God's election. We live in a time where many in the church think that doctrine in general should be hidden. It's for the back room. It's for the spiritual Christian. We want people to come back. I mean, doctrines like regeneration and trying to unfold biblically what it means, or the doctrine of justification, but faith alone and the doctrine of sanctification, or the doctrine of church discipline, or the doctrine of eschatology, on and on. No, 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 that's for some classroom. I mean, because those kind of doctrines, meaning trying to unfold anything deeper than a kindergarten level can be divisive. They can be controversial. They can be difficult for the people to understand. And they're tired on Sunday morning. And the worst deception of all that's really out there in our culture of church is that they are impractical over the years, numerous times in Bible college, and teaching in churches. And since I've been a pastor at this church, I've had the wonderful, the enlightening experience of people walking up to me after trying to unfold biblical sentences like this. And said, I've been in church for 20 years and i never heard of such a doctrine. Whether it's regeneration, or whether it's justification by faith alone. These are not systematic theology words. These are biblical sentences. Or whether it's God electing me according to His foreign... I never even knew there was a controversy because I never heard of such a thing. Why? Because they sat in church for 20 or 30 years and no one ever taught them. Straightforward, biblical sentences because what many of these people find out is after a light goes on someone has the nerve to teach what's there they start to say that's all over the place and many times we end up saying something. I, I kind of knew that was real I kind of thought that but people taught it out of me Jesus didn't hide it. Didn't put it in the back room. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John didn't hide it. The Apostle Paul clearly didn't hide it. And right here as we open up, praise God, this book, this letter of Peter's, He does not hide it. And therefore, if I am to be a faithful Master and servant of Jesus. If I am to faithfully preach this letter of First Peter, then it demands that we come to grips with what Peter is teaching. And hopefully we here at Abundant Grace are and will remain the kind of people who reject the false dichotomy of what is practical from what is theological. The apostles saw doctrine, all of it, as utterly practical for real Christianity. They saw doctrine for the purpose of real concrete human beings who suffer and raise children, which is hard, and marry, or have bad marriages, and work, or in business, or go to jail. He saw right here, election is so important because of real, practical, earthly life. And let me just say, just, for, just real quick I'm going to run through and just get a taste. Because Peter, when he opens up to the elect, and he unfolds it here, he knows where he's going. He knows he's going to say in chapter 1, verse 6, You have been distressed by various trials. He's really down to earth. He says in 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and as strangers in this world to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against your soul. In chapter 2, verse 21, He says, You have been called to suffer. In chapter 3, verse 16, They are being slandered these people, it's going on in many of these churches, slandered for their good behavior in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, they, that is the world, they're surprised that you do not live the same way. You don't run with them into the same excess of sinful life or dissipation. And they are maligning you. They're slandering you. This is what they're going through. In chapter 5, verse 9, Peter will say, the same types of sufferings are being experienced by other Christians throughout the world. See, Peter is very practical. He knows where he's going. And that's why he clothes them. entrenches them in the doctrine of election biblical meaning is our life you don't get more practical on how to live and how to die that's why Peter engulfs us in to the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by means of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, producing or unto your obedience in Jesus Christ, by the sprinkling of His blood. So, the rest of our time, let's look at how Peter defines what he means by, to the chosen The elect. First, the first phrase which I'll spend most of our time on. He says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay. Here's the question. I'm going to go really slow. Think. What is the basis upon which God chooses? That's the question. Street witnessing I used to be happy every week street witnesser for numbers of years back in the eighties. And this is still a good idea when you have a conversation with people and you let them talk, etc. And then you kind of bring the conversation to this great confronting question. If you were to die today, and God were to ask you, Why should I let you in heaven? Okay. Now believers hopefully answer correctly, and it's something like it's not based on what a lot of the answer You know, well, I've trying to be a good person, etc. But because nothing in me, I deserve to go to hell. But you sent your son Jesus to pay for my sin. And, and here it is. I believe. I'm a believer. I trust in Jesus. That's why. No other reason. Yeah, that's right. It's true. Just you just picture for a minute though God were to Okay, let's take it a little bit deeper now. And say, hey, Joe. Good answer. Correct answer. Next question. Why did you come to believe in me? When others did not? That would be a good time because Peter's at the gate, right? my (laughs) answer. Gives us the answer right here. He says, say this. Oh, okay, gotcha. Fine. Well, the reason I came to believe those or not is because you chose me according to your foreknowledge. Good answer. Because that's what he says here. Now, the big question is this. What does that mean? What does it mean? Because there's the basis of his choosing. He chose us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean that I really, of my own innate ability back in 1981, chose Jesus. I mean, I believe, I get it, I chose him, and then God, because he's omniscient in his knowledge, that is foreknowledge, that is looking to the future down the corridors of time, he could see Joe LeMay would make that decision to choose him, and therefore God, through eternity past, based upon that foreknowing, based upon that, said, I will. Choose you? Is that what Peter means? There are many in the church today who say God does not sovereignly from His own eternal purposes choose persons upon whom to bring to life in Jesus and cause saving faith in the Gospel to come about in them and thus justify them and save them forever. But they assert, no, 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 no! People are chosen on the basis of them bringing themselves to faith in the hearing of the Gospel and God sees it because He's God and He's omniscient and based upon His omniscience seeing what you would do autonomously apart from Him, based upon that, He has chosen to save all who would actually choose themselves to be saved. I don't think this is at all what Peter means in this text. When he says, "Believers are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God," but I think it's more like what Jesus meant when he got his apostles, he's got his close disciples, and what happened? Okay, this is what they happened. This might be you too. They saw him. Peter, James, John—they're fishing. And Jesus comes along and they hear Him. They're listening to words. He's preaching. And they chose to follow Him. And don't ever doubt it, because they did choose that. But Jesus had no problem and no contradiction down the road later in John 15 to say, You did not choose Me. I chose You. His point. His point isn't that John, James, Peter didn't have a human will that responded to the call of Jesus. No, they did. His point is that their choosing Jesus, choosing God, is based on God's choosing them, not the other way around. The word know, K-N-O-W, or foreknow, is not based in the way it's being used here, and I'm going to try to show in a minute, in a whole lot of the Bible. That word to foreknow, when God foreknows something, it's not based on Him knowing something outside it. It's not based on him knowing something about you. Now that I know that, okay, I'll choose you and not you. The word for know has to do with God's internal workings of choosing, of setting personal affections upon one. When we read Peter saying, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, we know foreknowledge has to be limited in some sense. We're slow here. What do I mean? Look, i got brothers in Jesus who will be in heaven with me. They are born again. Okay? From what we're talking about now, they would differ. But we both agree on this. The word foreknowledge has to be limited because not everybody will be saved. There's a heaven. There is a hell. We both agree. Here He says you're chosen according to the foreknowledge. Foreknowledge can't mean God's foreknowing everything and everybody. It can't merely mean that because not everyone is chosen. He chose you based upon his foreknowledge. Oh, so now the understanding of foreknowledge has got to shrink a little bit. He must know in this sense. Pay attention. He's got to know these people that he chooses in some different or special or more limited way. So... Over here, here's one answer. What we need to do is we need to, to insert this is not always wrong, this is not always wrong in biblical understanding. Actually, like Jesus is kind of a process, okay? So that's not my point here, but this is this is I'm gonna represent the wrong answer <laughs> rightly. We need to insert when he says you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, you need to insert what should be assumed then according to God's foreknowing who it is that would choose Christ. That's what He means. (coughs) would say, and I do not think that we at all need to assume that about the word foreknowledge here. First reason is simply this. When you open up the Bible and you look at the way the word to know or to foreknow is used... So often the word in its context means God's choosing. God's setting his limited special affection upon a person or group, etc. I mean, to know you don't have to read long in the Bible, do you? Adam did what? He knew his wife. What do you mean? Adam just had cognizance that she existed? Teenagers, no. He knew her in a special, intimate way. I just want you to listen and try to hang in there. Listen to a number of texts that I'm going to read using the word know. Or to foreknow in the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament. First, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, the Apostle Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Good translation, same word here in First Peter. If you, in some translations, could do this, chose for meaning's sake to translate the word prognosco for no as the word chosen, you wouldn't lose any meaning. Paul's saying God has not rejected his people whom he's chosen. He's talking about His chosen people, the Jews. He uses the word whom He foreknew. What do you mean foreknew? He he foreknows everybody in the sense of knowledge. It's not like He didn't know the Greeks. He's God. He foreknew the Jews. What do you mean? We mean knew them in a distinct, limited way. Not merely at all. His full cognizance of all that is. Which that is who God is in His omniscience. He knew them in His special choosing way. In the book of Amos, chapter three, verses one to two: "Quote. Here are the word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which He brought up from the land of Egypt." Here's God speaking. You only. Have I chosen? Or adults, do it. Come on. You only have I chosen. I'll do it one more time. You bet. You only have I chosen. Why did the New American Standard Bible translate it that way? Because the Hebrew word is the word to know because contextually it's clearly what he means by no Cho- choosing them Genesis chapter 18 verses 17 to 19 shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do God says no why because I have what chosen him in order that he may on and on Why did they translate it that way? The Hebrew word is the word to know. I'm not going to hide it from Abraham because I have known him. That's the word. Because it's synonymous with I chose him. One day I said, Abraham, you're mine. Come, here's my covenant. Hosea chapter 13 verses 4 to 5 quote I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt you know no god but me and besides me there is no savior it was i who knew you in the wilderness okay now don't attribute to god somehow a lack of knowledge of other peoples he knew them means in his special choosing setting His affection upon way. Psalm 1-6. Well-known psalm by many of us. For the Lord knows the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does He mean? It doesn't mean He doesn't know the ways of the wicked. It doesn't mean He doesn't know those who are the wicked. Cognizantly does it. It means to know Righteousness, I have a special affection in relationship with, with Jeremiah 1.5, Before, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet. What's he saying? I knew you, Jeremiah. He's not just being redundant about his omniscience. He's saying before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. I chose you, set you apart. It's knowing biblically has something to do with the internal workings of God. It has nothing to do with what Esau or Jacob would do, good or bad. I know you. A couple more. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Jesus speaking. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. He doesn't mean he doesn't know them, but you're omniscient. He doesn't mean he doesn't know them. He knows everything about them, he knows that they're not his. Why aren't they his? He says, Because I never knew them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if one loves God, that one is known by God. It's the only thing it could mean. That is proof that God knows you in a saving way. His saving affection upon Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 to 9 the apostle Paul writes however at that time you Gentiles when you did not know God you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods but now that you have come to know God and then he stops himself He just because Paul has I think hang with me a correct theology and so he stops himself let me just get the flow again, because they interrupted us. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Why? Same thing that we said earlier. He didn't choose me, I chose you. Their knowing, our knowing Him. Do you know Him? Yes, I do. I'm saved. I'm a believer. I know Him in a way I didn't know Him before. I have a relationship. It's true. Why? Because He knew me that comes first and that's why I know him now if you do have a bible on one more text and I'm going to spend a couple minutes here so I want us to go to one of the most significant texts on this word no and or for no Romans chapter 8 you got the gospels you got the book of Acts and then the book of Romans so please turn to Romans chapter 8 And we're going to be looking at verses 29 and 30. But I want to just do something for a second. I want to digress by reading what he's going to say after this. Because, again, just like Peter, oh, yes, doctrine takes work, thinking and praying and believing. Astronomical things in scripture can be painful, but for Paul like Peter, it is utterly important and practical. What I mean is this, what is going to flow out as Paul explodes with Unbelievable help for the Romans who will, just a few years from now, be suffering under Nero's Roman persecution. What comes out of what we're going to read in verses 29 is, quote, starting with verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What things? The things we're going to read about God's foreknowledge in a minute. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No. And so he's going to go on and say, starting verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, because... Paul says, because I am sure. Why are you sure, Paul? Because of what we're going to read in a minute. About God's foreknowledge. Because I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else under all creation will be able to separate from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does it get more practical? He says, throw anything in the world. You're dying in the hospital. Your kid doesn't come home and never will. Your life collapses financially. Relationship breaks apart. Just fill it in. That's where Paul's going. Okay. So why is he so convinced of these truths that he just said, nothing will separate you? Actually, I want to just start with the great verse. Verse 28. This is why. Because here's the foundation of why He said what we just read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That has been A great sustaining verse to thousands upon thousands of us believers for two millennia. But that verse will not stand alone. That's why the next thing he says, the reason verse 28 is true, is because. That's what the word for means at the beginning of verse 29. Because, why? Why can we trust that all things are working together for good? Uh, This is going to lead Paul to say, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. You're going to make it. Why is that true? Because whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the first one among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now I remember, when I was teaching in Bible college, all my students took other classes called systematic theology classes, which I did not teach, and the textbook that they had to read was the same textbook I had to read in college. And when I would come across, like I did, this verse, oh, they would just freak. <laughs> because they're taught from their systematic theology. No! Right here, for whom He foreknew, that is the ones He predestined and called and justified and glorified. Foreknew means whom He knew beforehand would choose Jesus. That's the basis of their being foreknown and their calling and their salvation. We are the foundation of our own salvation. That's the argument. Now why any of us would rejoice in that? I don't know. Anymore. Why? Let's look at it. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew. Okay, so here we go again. In the context, God foreknows <clears throat> who? Well, he, he foreknows in one sense. Everybody, right? So again, we gotta ask the question. In what way are we to define the meaning of the word foreknow in verse 29 of Romans 8? Because it's clear, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Not everybody will be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you see that? See, what we have here is what theologians have called over the centuries the chain of salvation. Paul is saying, Whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. And that's still a future. In other words, there's no dropouts. Everyone whom he foreknew is predestined. Everyone whom he predestined is called. He doesn't mean whom he's predestined, he called, oh well, he, he, he called some of the predestined. And all whom He whom he called, well, some of the called are justified. No one thinks that. Okay, so there are no dropouts. So what does He mean by the beginning part? Whom He foreknew. Again, it must be qualified because here the foreknowing only refers to those who are predestined and thus called and thus justified or saved. And thus one day will be glorified and resurrected bodies. So we have just seen though over the last 45 minutes, that there's no need to add a whole qualifying clause in here. Whom He foreknew, down the corridors of time, who it was that would choose Christ. And then God responds by choosing them, or foreknowing that reality. We don't need to do that, because the word foreknow does not at all have to have that meaning instead it has and it has here that special meaning of i knew you uh, beforehand before you were ever born i foreknew you chose you whom he foreknew is synonymous with whom he chose Notice, we just read it, but just a couple of verses later, Paul just throws in the word he didn't—the technical word he didn't actually use here. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That, well, you, that wasn't in a chain of salvation, but well, it wasn't Paul's mind, because it's what he meant but by formal. No, but more importantly, in the context here of Romans chapter eight. The word foreknow just doesn't work if you think it means this. Whom He foreknew would bring themselves to faith by their own innate powers of self-determination. It will not work. What I mean is this. Look at verse 30. He says, Those whom He called, He also justified." Do you think there are any of those who are called that are not justified? No, I don't either. Well, Paul was clear in Romans before this. He spent a number of chapters arguing for justification by faith. Chapter 5, verse 1. Having therefore, made all these arguments, he concludes his way. Having therefore been justified by faith. Okay, so, whom He called, He justified. That must mean, even though He doesn't use the word here, whom He called comes to faith. Or they can't be justified, right? Do you see that? See, in the Bible, to be called by God is used in at least two distinct ways. There is the general call, like what I do as a preacher, or we as Christians do, give the Gospel, repent and believe, calling you to be saved from your sin by trusting Jesus. Billy Graham has been doing it for years and decades. He gives the call. It's the general call. And two guys are sitting on their couch drinking beer listening to Billy Graham. And if you're flying a wall, what happens sometimes is one of them, because of that message, that day, their life is forever changed. The other guy just looks at him I heard what he said. What's And now the guy doesn't hang out with him anymore and do drugs. What happened to him? Because there's the other kind of call. It is the internal effect call. It is the call of God internally to the dead heart that brings it alive. In other words, it's the call that actually by God produces what He calls for. Faith. It's the call use an analogy when Jesus said to Lazarus who is dead, come. You didn't have a choice there in the sense of this. I'm um, dead, I wonder if I will do that. The call brought me to life. It's that internal, effectual call. Let me just give one clear text, because there's numbers of them in the Bible. Just one clear text on this 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. Paul writes. For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks seek for wisdom. But we, now this is, this is the general call. Paul's a missionary. But we preach Christ crucified. They give the message to real human beings who have real ears and speak the language of And calls them to faith. The general call. We preach Christ crucified. Here's the result to Jews it's a stumbling block and to Gentiles it's foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks to them Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God so what's called is Paul mean there, but to those who are called he has to mean that effectual, special call that actually produces every time what it calls for, be saved come to faith all the called are justified now back in Romans 8, all of them therefore that call in Romans 8 verse 30 must be the internal effectual call which always brings about saving faith in that sinner. Therefore, if that's true contextually, to try to interpret the word the word whom He foreknew He predestined and called and justified. to try to interpret the word foreknew to mean whom He in His omniscience looked down the corridors of time and He foresaw Who it is that would choose Jesus. Thus, that's whom He predestined to be saved. All who would find Christ by the own. It can't mean that because there is no such thing as that in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. There is no kind of faith. Whom He called to faith and produced that faith in them, He justified. There's a day paul saying in Romans 8 they will be glorified they will rise with resurrection bodies just like jesus's who are they those are the ones who have been justified who are they they are the ones who have been called who are they they are the So, back to 1 Peter. Peter opens this letter and he sets our roots really deep because he knows life is painful. He knows life can be confusing. He knows people, saved people, Christian people will scream at times, bloody, horrible, horrible that's why He sets our roots deep don't miss it oh yeah the gospel is and teenagers here you must believe you must embrace Jesus and His point here with the believers is yes you must embrace Him Yes, you have embraced Him. You believe in Him. And you love trusting in Him. But He's saying, below all of that, it's not because you're a Jew It's not because you're a Gentile, it's not because you're a male, or a female, or you're raised in a Christian family, or a Muslim family, or you're an American, or you're an Afghani. It is only because He chose you according to His foreknowledge. To the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And now very, very briefly, he's got two more phrases. What He does now is He unpacks whom God in eternity past foreloved, foreknew. He says, this is how you know who they are because that foreknowledge of election, that electing them, causes God to thus do something because He has chosen you that something would happen to you. First is this, elect in Or by the sanctification of the Spirit. See, He shows how God's sovereign work of election is carried out in our lives in time and space. How? Through or by means of sanctification of the Spirit. That's how He does it. Say my little three-year-old Hannah is at Grandma's house. And I choose. I elect her. I'm going to go get her. I'm going to bring her home. I choose her in a special way like only five others in my house. And so, because of my choosing, according to my special affection of foreknowledge, I go get her. How? By means of the car. So I get in the car and I drive the car to Grandma's house and I pick up my daughter Hannah and I put her into her car seat and buckle her in and I bring her home. She's chosen according to my foreknowledge and she's chosen by means of the car and me picking her up and bringing her home. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. How? By means of sanctification that means the Holy Spirit coming and setting you apart producing the call, the faith in you. And then thirdly, what does that produce in the sinful human life? Something's different. He says, elect for or unto obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what he said. In other words, faith produces those who mean to imperfectly but they have a genuine heart for Jesus their disposition even though there's that remaining disposition to rebel in them called the flesh is to walk with him that's why Jesus said if you love me you will obey me to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. He sends our roots down really deep. And those of you who know the book of First Peter, you should at this point appreciate why. One of the other major themes of this book is suffering. Peter, in the doctrine of God's election is really practical. If you haven't, trust me, believing the, the let me say it, believing the very non human based reality of who God is and of what the gospel is and of what salvation is, believing and understanding and embracing that in full is not the sign that you're actually saved. God saves people. And the evidence is they love Jesus. And they could die just being so confused and not embracing this. And then when they get to heaven, they will see it. But the hope for our lives in this life, is to come to the experience through Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit to embrace what is actually taught in the sentences of the Bible. To come to experience like the great preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, from the 1800s, Baptist preacher in London. He said, quote, When I was coming to Christ... I thought I was doing it all myself. Because that's exactly what it feels like. Raise your hand. Yep. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert at first is aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart with a hot iron one week night the thought struck me how did you come to be a christian i sought the lord but how did you come to seek the lord and then the truth flashed across my mind in a moment I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led led me to do so? then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith and so that doctrine of grace opened to me. I ascribe my change wholly to God. So, let me summarize everything I've just said. If you are a believer it's Christ your savior. God the Father chose you to relate to him and to enjoy him forever. How did he bring us about in your life by making your Desires your hearts, your affections, the home of the Holy Spirit who thus caused your affections and hearts to be captivated with Jesus Christ to embrace and love the reality of His shed blood sprinkled on you. That's how Peter opens this letter before he even says, Hi. He roots our life, He roots your victories, and He roots your pain in God's sovereign, electing, special love. He's saying, know, know this, that no hardship, no tragedy, no horror is meaningless. Is outside God's sovereign, choosing, sanctifying work in your life. But they're all part of it. So as we begin this journey in First Peter, let's start here. Never leave this foundation because Peter lays this foundation this morning for everything he's gonna say. So let's be a people who believe what God teaches through the Apostle Peter. And let him cause the roots of our lives through the Gospel to go deeper than any of us can ever imagine. And Father, that's my prayer. That our exhortation to believe, Peter, that you would do it. You would do it like you did for your servant Spurgeon, for your servant St. Augustine, for Luther, for Calvin, for Edwards. And as one wretched, not anywhere close to a class of people like that, nobody me. Continue to work these truths in me and in all who are here to the glory, to the glory of Jesus. I pray. Amen. Please stand.